The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. U.S. President Joe Biden on Thursday hit out at a controversial Alabama court ruling over frozen embryos created through in vitro fertilization, or IVF, calling it outrageous and unacceptable. Alabama's Supreme Court ruled last Friday that frozen embryos in test tubes should be considered children and entitled to the same legal rights as other unborn children. It's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, that was a big story breaking earlier in the week, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, IVF is one of those issues that uh, get hit close to home for a lot of people. Uh, the Alabama Supreme Court, if you're not aware of what they did, they had a ruling on frozen embryos, and they protected them, which is a, a, it's a very good thing under their state's constitution. And as a result, what, what, what was the reaction, right? Well, everything from, you know, caution to outrage. Now, we got a Catholic who is in office, right? We're, we're Catholics on IVF, on in vitro fertilization. Well, Joe Biden's on the wrong side of what the church teaches. He said this. He was angry about it, too. You know how he gets really angry. Make no mistake. This is a direct result of overturning Roe v. Wade. Oh, my gosh. It, it saddens me to even say that, doesn't it? I mean, Roe v. Wade was horrible. It not only destroyed life, damaged women and family, and it was an assault on the dignity of life and on God himself. Tragic is what it was. We need to please pray for the president. I mean, I just right now, say Hail Mary for him. You know, pray that the mother of life can bring about a conversion in the heart on these issues. Um, you know, just lunacy to hear a, a so-called Catholic say something like that. Washington Post columnist Ruth Marcus claimed that the ruling was a step toward making Alabama into what they called, now this is how crazy they get, right? They called it a theocracy. <laughs> really? Chief Justice Thomas Parker wrote in his concurring opinion that God made every person in his image and that each person, therefore, has a value. God bless him. No doubt about that. What did our founding fathers say, right? They said that everyone has an inalienable right to life. Right? To life. God made everyone in his image. Every person has a value. Chief Justice Thomas Parker, thank you for being a voice of sanity. Uh, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. I want to play some audio from her. She's got a big primary coming up literally hours from now. Just a couple of days we're going to be we're going to be doing this 48 hours from now. Not even that. I, is it tonight or is it... Um, Saturday. I think it's on Saturday. Um, the president, of course, um, you know, is leading significantly in that race, and we'll see how it shakes out. But uh, Nikki Haley, she was asked about the issue of in vitro fertilization, and I, I actually really didn't know that she she has a child by by in vitro. So um, basically, she was on CNN, and uh, they asked her about whether or not an embryo is a baby. And uh, here's what she had to say. I want to ask you about some news of day, specifically something that's come up in Alabama. The Supreme Court there said that embryos created through IVF are considered children and are offered those same protections. Do you agree? I mean, I think, I mean, embryos to me are babies. So I even mean, those created through IVF. I mean, I had 
artificial insemination. Yeah. That's how I had my son. So when you look at, you know, one thing is to have um, to save sperm or to save eggs. But when you talk about an embryo, you are talking about, to me, um, that's a life. And so I do see where that's coming from when they talk about that. Do you have concerns about the ways that that could hurt people who are seeking IVF treatment? I think that we have to have those conversations. That's incredibly personal. It's incredibly sensitive. And I think that's the conversation the doctor needs to have with the patient. Yeah. Let's never underestimate the importance of the relationship between a doctor and patient when they're doing any of that. We, Michael and I had those conversations. Yeah. And when you have those conversations and you have that artificial insemination, you talk about, I mean, you limit the number well, that you there's insert. viable embryos and not viable embryos. And if the state is saying that not viable ones can't be done away with. But I mean, those that's... are the things we have to look at, right? So you have to be, this is one where we need to be incredibly respectful and sensitive about it. So, you know, I liked in large part what she had to say. I mean, that was, by the way, the U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, running for now. Uh, she's a Republican challenger to Trump. Uh, she initially came out and said, yeah, no, an embryo is a baby. You know, my husband and I, we had this conversation. We have a child from it. Of course she sees it as a baby, right? Here's what I don't like, and it was not in this audio. It happened a little bit later. Um, later on, um, she walked the, her statement back saying that she doesn't, you know, what she said doesn't mean that she agrees with the ruling in Alabama. And, and I'm like, you know, w why would you do that? You've got a child from in vitro fertilization. You know that it's a human life. Maggie and I were talking about it. Maggie says she wants to play both sides. Maggie, I think you're right. I, you know, she's one of the the uh, leaders who wanted to compromise on the whole life issue, and and I understand the mentality behind that. But I just won't compromise uh, on those those innocent children, those embryos um, who are going to be discarded or destroyed or aborted in the womb. You know, I, I think we need people to speak truth. That's the problem. Don't worry about what the the masses say, speak truth, right? Speak truth. Um, one other story here, too, and then we're going to take a look at, um, of course, your taxes coming up. We want to get into how, well, I, I don't know if you've done your taxes. A lot of people have. A lot of people have it. If you're a procrastinator, you're going to listen. Aaron Whitaker is going to be stopping by, and we're going to talk to him about how you won't get flagged, right? How not to get flagged and, and what you need to be aware of when you're doing your taxes this year. AI, they're going to start using now too to, to consider audits, you know? So the, the world is changing. The president is walking back his push for electric vehicles. Did you hear about this one? The administration, we spoke about this earlier in the year, they gave automakers until 2030, right? And you're just talking about six years from now to make all their vehicles with zero tailpipe emissions. So you got 72 months to do it. That pretty much means, well, electric cars. But as you probably know, people just are not buying them. The demand for them is pretty much non-existent, especially if you take away the rebate incentives that the government's been putting on them. So manufacturers have been cutting back on their numbers, even in Europe. Here's a little bit more on what the administration is planning. From the gas pump to the charging station, America's green shift accelerated to a record 1.2 million new electric vehicle sales last year. The average price, $50,789. But the rate of growth is slowing as unsold EVs stack up at dealerships. In Wisconsin, Coons Automotive owns 44 dealerships across the region. Yeah, we've definitely seen a slowdown across the board on EV sales. 
Cutting tailpipe emissions has been a key driver of President Biden's climate change agenda. We're building the future of the electric vehicle. We're bringing back U.S. manufacturing jobs. But the Biden EPA is now set to slow the ramp up of tough new emission rules. That could mean two-thirds of all new vehicle sales would be electric by 2032. The $40,000 vehicle, the $35,000 vehicle, the choices are limited in the mass market when it comes to electric vehicles. Pressure to slow the pace of the new standards rollout comes from automakers which have invested heavily in new battery technology and auto workers who fear potential job cuts. In September, Mr. Biden walked the picket line with UAW workers. Last month, the union endorsed him for another term. Yeah, and we'll see what happens. We are getting close to another election, so we'll see what happens. Uh, Will he be reelected? Some members of Congress are calling for the president's cabinet to invoke the 25th Amendment. Remember when this came out? Trump was in office. People thought, are they going to use it on him? And Nancy Pelosi says, no, you know, but you'll see how we're going to use it. Some want to use the 25th Amendment to remove Joe Biden from office. If you're not familiar with the 25th Amendment, it, it enumerates the steps that are necessary in order to declare a president incompetent and remove him or her from office. So Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri uh, he said this, listen, he said, special counsel Hearst cited President Biden's lack of mental fitness as an excuse not to prosecute him for willfully mishandling classified documents. It's time for Attorney General Merrick Garland to, to stop treating our commander in chief with kid gloves and either invoke the 25th Amendment or rightly prosecute him. I don't know how you argue against that. The Attorney General for West Virginia uh, actually wrote to Vice President Kamala Harris urging her to invoke that amendment. And Ronnie Jackson, the former White House physician, he called Biden. He says, look, at least take a cognitive test. I think that would assuage a lot of things. If the president's fit, take the test. I mean, I wouldn't want to take it. I get it. But why not take it? You put all this stuff to rest, right? Um, all those calls, you know, Ronnie Johnson, the White House physician, uh, the attorney general of West Virginia, Senator Hawley, all have fallen on deaf ears. So I don't think we're going to see anything come of that, but. Just food for love. The, hey, did you hear this story? One final thing here I want to get into. Weird story, and I wasn't going to share it with you, but I'm going to share it with you just because I think this is the insanity of the time we live in. There's a British hospital, and they are claiming that men can produce breast milk. How did we get to this point, right? <laughs> How do you get to the point where you th – this is all part of this transgender ideology that, that's out there right now. It's crazy where men can compete against women, and uh, just it's insane. Men cannot produce breast milk. Right, they're, they're they're claiming they can just as good as women's. So here it is: the medical director of the university's hospital, Sussex, wrote a letter claiming that milk from women who gave birth to babies and men who took hormone drugs to induce lactation well, are both human milk and ideal food for infants. What would you rather have? Uh, something God naturally created, or some hormone infested lactation? I don't. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> it really is. It's crazy, Maggie. You're a mother. Well, I'm I'm, I'm learning all about yeah. this next stage of life and everything that I eat, everything that I take if I take medications is going to is is going to affect my my milk for my child and I realize how a delicate balance it is of you know, assessing what you need and what the child needs and it all affects the milk and and their nutrition. You cannot tell me that a man pumping himself full of hormones and drugs 
is the same thing as a woman's natural capability. I've, I've even read that a woman, when she sniffs and kisses her baby, the more you do that, the more the woman's body detects what the baby needs in their nutrients and the breast milk will automatically adjust to what the baby needs. It's incredible. It's a miracle. Exactly. So you can't tell me that this synthetic goop that's oozing out of a man's chest is the same thing. I I mean, why would you want to do that? I mean, it just, it's, uh, it just goes against everything that is natural. Everything is natural. You know, what they don't say, and I was talking to somebody about this earlier, is that the drugs used for inducing lactation, they're dangerous both for the person that is receiving the injection, but especially for the baby, right? The the hormone progestin is given to develop milk-producing glands. And then there's another, uh, there's uh, what they call um, domperidone. That's needed to produce the hormone signal for the body to produce the milk. Is that domperidone, that's the problem. It can induce, they say, uncontrollable movements, especially in children, as well as seizures and major cardiac issues like cardiac arrest. That's bizarre. One bit of good news, and I'm going to leave it at that. I'm just throwing that out there to you. I wanted you to be aware of what's happening because I hope, I know sanity and reason and truth will ultimately prevail, but man, we are living in, as I, I think my colleague Patrick says, clown world. Right? <laughs> Such a great way of describing it. We are in bizarro world. We really are. It's I when I grew up, who I gosh, I would never have thought something like this would happen. There is an executive in Nassau County, New York. They issued an executive order banning guys who think that they're women to play against girls in public schools. And uh, he issued this executive order. Um, the legislation believed to be the first of the kind in the nation. And this is what he says. He says, we're protecting girls, and their right to compete against other girls. It makes no sense for a biological male, for a biological boy who identifies as transgender to compete against them. It's completely unfair. Biological boys are faster, bigger, stronger, and they have a physical advantage against women. I think if we apply reason and rationality to so many of these issues, things become a lot clearer. That's for sure. Hey, uh, Aaron Whitaker is standing by, and I want to get to him because I want to talk about the uh, about your taxes. I don't know whether or not you filed yet. You know, even if you have somebody else do it for you, you know the process, right? You got to gather all that stuff and put it together. And if you're doing tax deductions, I mean, there's a litany of stuff. Um, there's a guy named James O'Keefe. He founded, uh, and then he got kicked out of Project Veritas. But uh, he has a new video out of an IRS agent saying that. IRS artificial intelligence is going to be used to look into taxpayer bank accounts. AI, how can they do that? How can AI scan your bank account? And uh, that the IRS, well, it's likely they're talking about going after the big guns. He says the IRS likes to go after the little guy because they don't really they don't have the resources to fight back. Now, I don't know if that can be verified or not. It's a story that's been floating around, but we are in tax season. Congress gave IRS a ton of money, you know, gave the Internal Revenue Service money to buy new computers and equipment. They were going to hire all the all these new agents, and they, they're trying to get through a backlog of returns that they've had for a while now. But so far, uh, they've been targeting high-income earners and people in these complex business re- partnerships. So there are reports that they're starting to look at executives who use their company's business jets for personal use, but don't, you know, don't reimburse a company for its use. I guess it's a good thing. I mean, I don't know. 
Uh, Taylor Swift sold off her smaller private jet. Um, you know, the little guy like you, like me, you know, uh, are also open to audits. It's not something you want to deal with. So I thought we'd look today at steps to keep you safe. What can you do to make sure that you don't send up a red flag and the IRS comes and gives you a little bit of a headache? Joined today by Aaron Whitaker. It's good to have him back with us today. Aaron, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Drew. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm hanging in there. Appreciate your time. Um, Aaron, no Aaron Whitaker, by the way. my favorite topics. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron uh, worked for the IRS, for those who don't know, for about 30 years doing examinations and appeals. And uh, you can check him out if you want to tap into his expertise. His website is Whitaker. EA.com and Whitaker's W H I T A K E R Whitaker EA.com. So your, your thoughts, I don't know if you followed any of this. Have you seen that story about AI possibly being involved now in the use of, and being used by the uh, internal revenue service? I have, I haven't seen that particular story, but one thing that I think people don't realize is that some form of AI in the form of algorithms has been used forever and a day yeah. in the government and in the, the IRS to determine what's, uh, what returns have the best possibility of uh, some type of change. And it's good enough that, you know, typically 85% of returns that are picked for audit have a change. There's no change rates, about 15%. Yeah. And that's, that's been the standard for, I've been in this business now 50 years on both sides of the table. And that's pretty much been the standard. And that's really been some form of AI before people even knew what AI was. Yeah, no kidding. So, you know, some 101 for those who are listening. A lot of people say, oh, my gosh, I still have to do my taxes. Are there certain things that you should and should not do? Certain things that you want to definitely avoid so you don't get audited? And what are some of the things that are an absolute must, in your opinion? Well, what I do is any return that I do is I tell my clients that I, I try to audit-proof the return by looking at it like an IRS person would. And uh, one of the things is there are still people out there filing tax returns on paper. Oh, wow. If you file a tax return on paper, that means somebody's going to look at it. Oof. And it's, it has a much higher possibility of error, not just your error, but the document input, because that means somebody has to input that information. And even if you did everything right and they input it wrong, then you could conceivably be audited. Whereas if you go through somebody that, uh, you know, does e-filing or you use TurboTax or one of those products like that, the chance of error is extremely minimal if you've put in all the correct information. Um, One of the things that uh, comes up repeatedly is people, uh, They'll sell a house. They'll sell their personal residence. And they'll think, oh, I get to uh, have $250,000 in gain without paying any tax on it if I'm single or $500,000 if I'm married. So it's not going to be taxable to me. Well, it may not be taxable, but it is reportable. And people don't report. You get a 1099 from that, a 1099S. And let's say somebody sold a house for $500,000 then IRS matches up about 12 months later. They match up 1099s, W-2s, any kind of information documents against the return, and they say, there's 500000 in income missing. And all they have to prove is that you got the income. The burden of proof of, the, of what you paid for it or some kind of deduction is on the taxpayer. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, 
uh, there are other things I think you got to be careful uh, of too, right? That uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot. Of, I wrote down a few things. Uh, I looked at the article that Tom had sent me. Yeah. Looked, pulled up a couple other articles, and uh, but a lot of times people that have stock transactions and mm-hmm. think of the people that are uh, playing in crypto today in little minute parts of crypto, and every potential transaction is potentially a reportable transaction or every stock transaction. Let's say you're in E-Trade or Mm -hmm. Fidelity or Vanguard, something like that. Every one of those transactions generates a 1099B. And if your return doesn't match up to that, then it's going to get kicked out. I'm currently arguing a case where a client uh, took his his consolidated 1099 from uh, like E-Trade, gave it to the preparer, who totally botched, instead of reporting the transactions, he said, well, I'll just report the the gross transactions. Well, it didn't match up. And so IRS tried to tax him on $15,000 plus a $3,000 substantial understatement penalty. And when he went back to the preparer with the IRS letter, the guy pretty much said, wrote wrote a a letter that was so unprofessional and said, pray. And the guy wasn't uh, he wasn't an enrolled agent, a CPA, or a tax attorney, so he was just somebody out there that shouldn't have been preparing returns. Oh and gosh. unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there like that, and that's where the small guy gets caught up. So uh, Joe Wage Earner that uh, it doesn't want to pay to get tax prep or pay too much for it might know a guy in the neighborhood. Hey, I know a guy. Go right, see this right. guy. He can get you good deductions or whatever. But if those deductions don't match up, yep. you know, I've had people that, <clears throat> they'll have 50000 in income, and then they'll have 70000 in deductions. And I'll say, how can you do that? Wow. Oh, well, I had this, 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 and this. And I'll say, well, did you borrow any money? No. Well, here's what it tells me. You had at least $20,000 in unreported income if you spent seventy and you didn't borrow any money. Plus, you had probably another $30,000 because that's the average cost for one person to live today. So you probably underreported your income fifty thousand dollars, and that's what the IRS algorithms will pick up. You know, a lot of people use TurboTax; they try to do this stuff mm-hmm. themselves. When should a taxpayer consider maybe hiring a certified tax professional, somebody who can, you know, guide them through this? Is uh, and how effective are those TurboTax programs? I mean, a lot of people they, they swear by them. I hire somebody, but uh, you know, I I know a lot of people who don't. Um, your thoughts on them? Uh, the, the tax programs are wonderful, but it's like a hundred forks in a road. All you got to do is take one fork wrong, mm-hmm. and you've got a major problem. You don't end, you don't end up in the same zip code if you answered one question wrong. And typically, if, if somebody is just a W two wage earner, right. um, the the tax uh, act in uh, two thousand seventeen reduce the number of people that can itemize by 80 to 85%. So very few people can even itemize anymore. So if you do itemize, that does kind of stick out. And where it might hit your audience is people that tithe or have a, a lot of money going to charitable organizations. They, they need to realize, hey, you got to have the backup for that. And if you come to me and say, hey, I made $100,000 and I donated $20,000, um, I'm going to say to you, what made up that 20000 and tw- I don't want to see 20000 I want to see an exact number because that round number will kick that thing out faster uh, than yeah, sure. you know just about anything. That's wild. My guest today, Aaron Whitaker, I hope you'll check him out too. I'll give you his website very quickly. It's um, Whitaker 
EA.com. He's uh, worked for the IRS, has 30 years of examination and appeals experience, and just giving us some heads up if you're just joining us on what might trigger an audit. I know a lot of people are still doing their taxes, or at least they're planning on it. I'm always curious about this too, Aaron. How long do you keep your tax records, uh, you know, so that – Okay, you passed last year, you passed the year before. It's very possible you can get audited this year. The IRS can go back in the previous years, even though you think you've already made, you know, you, you, you passed those years, so to speak. How much documentation should you keep and for how long? And how far back can the IRS go? Well, they, it depends on, on what they come up with in terms of, uh, let's say we're talking about unreported income. In a typical IRS audit, let's say somebody left a, 1099 for some dividends off of their return. They'll issue a letter and they have three years to do that. Um, however, if the income that's supposedly unreported is 25% or more, they can go back six years. If a case is determined to be fraud, there is no statute of limitations. Wow. Uh, most, and keep in mind, most cases aren't fraud, no matter what. Even the ones that are highly negligent never rise to the level of fraud. So I tell people that if you have stocks, if you have uh, personal residence or rental properties, anything that you might sell in the future, by all means, keep the returns that include those items uh, and also keep the sales uh, like the settlement sheets for when you uh, bought properties because all of a sudden somebody comes in and, and said, hey, I just sold my rental property for $498,000. Oh, well, your return says you paid 100000 for it. Do you have the settlement sheet? Oh, no, I didn't keep that. And there may be lots of things in those records, not just the settlement sheet, but records of major improvements that the person has made over the years that could help reduce that gain. Well, Aaron, thanks for being here. We'll, we'll probably touch base again as we get closer to filing uh, uh, you know, on tax day. But um, people want to check you out, WhitakerEA.com, I'm assuming is the best way to go, and that's W-H-I-T-A-K-E-R. E-A. That is correct. All right. Hey, Aaron, thank you for making time for us. Appreciate your hard work. No problem, Drew. Thank you. You got it. That's Aaron Whitaker. I've got to take a short break. When I come back, we will change gears. Today is the anniversary of the death, believe it or not, of the venerable Samuel Mazzucchelli. He was one of these great missionaries to the early American frontier. Powerhouse uh, figure. And I'll fill you in on his life. We'll have a great conversation. Stay with me. Your news. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Your news now. Thanks to network sponsor PushPay. PushPay offers parishes, a platform for tracking donations and sacraments, overseeing schedules, mobile apps to help manage your administrative load, and much more. Info at relevantradio.com slash pushpay. That's relevantradio.com slash pushpay. Connect with Drew at RelevantRadio.com and on the Relevant Radio app. You know, I believe in the communion of saints, and I believe that those who have gone before us can intercede for us in a powerful way. And I often turn to the venerables as well as the blesseds for their intercession. I want to put on your radar a... Uh, a powerful saint, a future saint. He's not a saint yet. He's, he's venerable. His Father Samuel Mazzucchelli. And he's one of these great early missionaries, one of these great early pioneers here in the United States. And um, he evangelized the the 
early American frontier, suffered in all sorts of ways. So well, I want to do this for you. I want to bring you back to a great conversation I had with a woman who introduced me to him, and he's now been a big part of my spirituality. Listen to this. I really believe um, in the communion of saints, and I really believe that there are blesseds and, uh, and venerables and servant of gods who uh, can intercede for us very, very powerfully. Men and women who've gone before us, who have lived lives of heroic virtue and uh, who are waiting for you and I to, to say, hey, for you and me to say, I need your help. Can you help? And I guarantee you, you'll, you'll see it. I was introduced to Father Samuel Mazzucchelli, and today's actually the anniversary of his death. He was called home uh, by a, a woman named uh, Linda Shaneman, and she, uh, she took a trip with me one day in Green Bay, Wisconsin. This is really an anointed place, and I, I really believe God's going to work powerfully from this area. Relevant Radio has had its roots here and is continuing to grow. But before that, before that ever took place, uh, the missionaries took foot uh, to this land, and they brought God, and they brought the message of God to this area. And uh, today's the anniversary of a priest who evangelized this part of the world. He lived in the upper Midwest during the 19th century, and he evangelized anybody he came across. His name was Father Samuel Mazzucchelli, and he came here like 1828. He spent most of his life in Illinois and then Iowa and Michigan and Wisconsin. He traveled on foot and horseback and snowshoe and canoe and anything he could get to get from one place to another, and he preached the gospel. He was an anointed preacher. To anyone who would listen, he ministered the sacraments, he established parishes, he built churches, he visited the sick and the dying. He, he spent his life in dedication to God, and he was a model priest. He, he really was, and he had incredible gifts, too, mystical gifts, special love for the Virgin Mary. He did harsh penances, even had a vision of her. St. John Paul II, of course, he was declared venerable by him, and I really believe his time is now. So if you are listening to me, and you are praying for something that just does not seem to reach the ear of God. You're saying, I'm praying and praying and praying. Of course, pray for God's will. Pray for the clarity so you can know what that will is. But sometimes, you know, miracles happen. I often share stories about divine mercy and the great miracle of Maureen Digan. She went when St. Faustina was just a servant of God to her tomb and went to confession and, and went to mass. And then she went and she prayed at the tomb of Faustina, who was not blessed at the time, and she miraculously healed, miraculously. So I've been turning to Father Mazzucchelli. As a fellow Italian, I feel connected to him. I really believe that he is one of those unsung heroes, and I want you to hear his story. I want you to know who he is, and I want you today, on the anniversary of the day that he was called into heaven, to maybe turn to him when we pray the chaplet coming up a little bit later. And it's a delight to have my friend Linda join me today. She actually... um, it was she actually took me to the grave of Father Mazzucchelli and took me to the Cincinnati Sisters, where I was able to hold what they call a penance chain. It's something that he wore to do penance. These great saints all understood suffering. They all understood the the power that comes when we unite our prayer with suffering. Samuel Mazzucchelli is buried. Um, I believe it's in the diocese of Madison, and that's where his cause for sainthood is opened. And uh, Linda joins me today. Linda, thank you for, for your time, and thank you for introducing me to this remarkable, I believe, future saint. But we'll see. We'll see what God has in store. A remarkable intercessor, for sure. 
Well, thank you for having me on, Drew. This is exciting to talk about Father Mesa Kelly and especially on his anniversary of his entry into eternal life. Yeah, so yeah. this is perfect. So I mean, you, you've fallen in love with him. I know I have. I've been to his, his site. I intend to come back uh, again, but how did you meet him? And, and tell us a little bit about his life. I know I kind of gave the broad brush perspective on, on his life. You can fill in the gaps and strengthen anywhere else that uh, you think needs to be filled in. But uh, share your story and, and, and how this saint, I believe the saints reach out to us. I, I do. St. Faustine has done that to me. And I believe Mazza Kelly is one of those saints who is, who's called out to me. And saints choose us sometimes. And in our own life, I mean, wherever you're listening, right, you might say, oh, it's St. Therese for me, or it's St. Anthony, or it's St. Joseph. It's, and you can get that sense. Um, how did Father Mazza Kelly reach out to you? Well, um, it was when I was a young girl. I grew up about an hour away from Cincinnati, which is the Dominican community founded by Father Samuel. And we had a family friend who was working on building the new chapel that they were uh, building in the 1960s. And so we would go over there to visit. And and uh, so that's when my first introduction to Father Samuel. And over the years, I've just gotten to know more and more about him. And learn. And the more I learn about him, the more I love him. And, and I'm amazed at this missionary priest and what he did, and what he accomplished back, you know, 150 some years ago without all the conveniences we have today, you know, his, his first assignment was um, what is now Wisconsin and Michigan. And he was once the only priest west of Lake Michigan. So That's amazing. So, you know, he, how, did he, how did he evangelize the territory here? I think America's an anointed nation, uh, and I think God has chosen America to lead the world spiritually. I've said that before. Uh, it was in, yes. the, in the upper Midwest in a place called Champion, Wisconsin, where in 1859 the Mother of God appeared and appeared to a Belgian immigrant. We know that down uh, in what is now Texas, uh, a nun would bilocate from uh, you know, Spain. Uh, many Oh, Mother Maria Bagrida. You got yeah. it. And would evangelize the natives before you know the missionaries even got here. They knew the faith when she arrived. And then you take a look at the rivers. The Mississippi River was initially called the River of the Immaculate Conception. You know, the Chesapeake Bay uh, in Maryland called the Bay of St. Mary. I mean, you go through this whole litany of things. You see, and even the Revolutionary War, I, I believe there was a, a divine imprint on the way certain battles were won and, and what happened in, in our history. And I think Father Mazzucchelli is one of these great stories that is yet yet to be told. Um, did he have a relationship with the natives here? And why did he end up coming here? And, and, and tell us a little bit more about who he was. Okay, so Father Samuel, um, Italian like you, he was born in Milan, Italy, in 1806. And at age 17, he answered God's call to join the Order of St. Dominic. So he was a Dominican, a preacher. And then at age 22, he answered God's call. He left home and all to come to the United States to be a missionary. And that was in a time when our country was only 52 years old then. Uh, He didn't know any English, but he eventually learned that language plus French, because he ministered to the French Canadians, um, the Indian population. He was very, very um, understanding and supportive of the Indians, and he also learned German. And actually, the first book printed in Wisconsin was an Indian prayer book um, printed by Father Mazzucchelli. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, I had no yeah. idea. So um, he also built churches, right? And, and he was a great architect. I mean, he had a lot of gifts, this guy. He, he did. He definitely had a lot of gifts from God. So he built 20 churches and started 40 parishes in Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa. Wow, that's amazing. So on the mystical side of him, I'd love you to share a little bit about that. You know, I had the opportunity 
I, and I would thank you for that to take me to the the convent there, and I was able to take what they called a uh, you know a penance chain and hold it in my hand. He wore this. I know he wore it so much that when they found him on his deathbed, it had been embedded into his skin. I mean, you talk about constant sacrifice and suffering, and he had great love right. for the for the Blessed Mother. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but he had apparitions of both. Mary and St. Joseph. Fill me in on, on the mystical side of this priest. And we know he was a great missionary, great evangelist, great architect, great teacher. What was his spiritual life like? Well, his mother died when he was only, I think, six years old. And I think he formed a very special relationship with our Blessed Mother, and actually mainly under her title of Our Lady of Sorrows, which makes sense wow. since he lost his mother at such a young age. And, uh, yeah, he did have um, a vision of, well, he thinks he was visited by St. Joseph. He said one day he had a, a mysterious visitor just kind of suddenly appeared at, at the rectory and came in, and Father Messer Kelly was telling him about some problem he was facing, and this man gave him a solution that he'd never even considered, and it was the perfect answer, and the man left, and then Father looked to watch him leave, you know, down the street, yeah. and he disappeared. Oh, my God. So he always felt, he always felt it was St. Joseph. Yeah, oh, I know. So, cool. so that's typical St. Joseph, what yeah, a, yeah. a very powerful saint, but he does his work very quietly. Yeah. That's so true. So he not only had that vision, but did he encounter Our Lady too? Yes, he did, um, twice that we know of. So the first time was about um, six months before he died, and he was preparing for the consecration of one of the churches, one of the many churches he built, um, and he was laying awake in his tiny bedroom, and the door door opened into a sitting room that they called the Blue Room, mm-hmm. and our Blessed Mother appeared to him in the Blue Room, clad in a white robe, the blue mantle, enveloped in a blue cloud. And one of the nuns, apparently, uh, one of the Dominican nuns was there and said, he looked as if light were flashing out of his eyes. He spoke of the Blessed Mother as if he was seeing her. And he said, um, I was always a great admirer of beauty, but I never saw anything to compare with her beauty. She called me her child and told me to desist from an undertaking which I had in mind. What happened after that with him? He was just emboldened in his mission? I mean, his ho- you know, I'm assuming his holiness in his life must have been pretty well known. Was this a very private apparition, or was that known? It was a private one, but it was witnessed by um, some nuns. So mm. I think um, um, if it hadn't been for them, we might not have known That's about awesome. it. But yes, I think definitely our Blessed Mother was a great um, influence on him. That's great. So what about the other one? So he died, you know, 157 years ago today. The night uh, he had gone out, um, like... A few weeks before, and on a winter, cold winter Wisconsin night, to minister to one of um, his sick parishioners, and he developed double pneumonia. So a couple of days before he died, he was asleep, and he woke up, and he tried to raise himself to his feet, and he exclaimed, Oh, good mother. And they said he had tears rolling down his cheeks. He appeared to be wrapped in profound meditation, and then he burst forth into tears of joy. And then they, the nuns apparently were there ministering to him, and they said, um, you know, ask what was the matter. And he said, oh, nothing but happy thoughts. God grant that I may have them in my last moments. Wow, how beautiful. Well, my guest today is Linda Shaneman, and we're talking um, a little bit about Father Samuel Mazzucchelli, if you're just joining us. He was a great evangelist here in the, uh, in, in the early frontier, really went to some very rugged territory. And he brought Christ to the nation. Today's the anniversary of the day that God called him home. 
They said he was also a visionary. He was a mystic of that level where both uh, St. Joseph and the Mother of God appeared to him. I want to talk about a, a spiritual component that all of us are called to. It's exemplified in all the great saints, and it's something that he did to a heroic level. I don't think I'd ever be able to do what he did. Your Virtual Parish, The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. You can support Relevant Radio in many ways. Joining a giving society, donating a vehicle you don't need anymore, and now donating a piece of land or other real estate. Donate now at relevantradio.com slash property. 200 years ago in the beautiful city of Milan, Luigi and Richelle Mezzichelli rejoiced at the birth of their youngest son, Samuel. Little could they have imagined where God's providence would lead him. Across the Atlantic to the dense forests and prairies of the old Northwest Territory. When, at age 17, Mazzucchelli entered the Dominican order, his family could hardly understand his desire to join a Catholic religious order that, like so many others in Europe, seemed destined to dissolve. The young man traveled to Rome to study for the priesthood. There he heard the call of the American missions. Keeping it relevant, it's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Giving you a look at both. Life and faith here. That's what you get in this program. Makes it different than any political show you might listen to or any news show. And I believe in the communion of saints. I do. And I want to plug you in to a great saint. It's a saint, that, a great saint, a great intercessor. He's not a saint yet. He's on his way to sainthood. I believe he probably will be one day, but only God knows that. But I, I want to introduce you to somebody who I've I've felt a call to promote, a, a, a call to pray to and who I believe is going to intercede, and maybe it's you. you know, maybe it's your situation that he'll come through for in a powerful way. I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Linda Shaneman. She's been uh, she's the one who introduced me. I prayed at the tomb of uh, Father Mazzucchelli and held the very chain that he wore and did harsh penance with with her, and I'm, I'm grateful for both her friendship and, and this introduction. He was a man, if you're just joining me, who was a great pioneer, a great evangelist on the early frontier, a very profound Catholic priest that had incredible impact on the on the natives here and bringing Christ to them and the faith. Uh, his cause is, you know, underway right now. And uh, Linda, you know, so much to talk about. I, I like to pick up on on penance because take a look at all the great saints, uh, Padre Pio in particular, they all embraced suffering. They understood the value and the power of it. And even when they weren't personally suffering from any personal affliction, they did harsh penances. Father Mazzucchelli had what they called a penance chain. Would you explain what a penance chain is, and, and ultimately what kind of penances he did. Sure. So the penance chain that Father Mazzucchelli wore, which no one even knew he had until after he died, and they were preparing the body for burial. So he did it as obviously a private devotion, and he must have been wearing it for a number of years because as he um, grew and, and gained a little weight, it became embedded into his skin. So they said it was actually blood-stained. Um, so it's an iron chain that he had wrapped around his waist, and obviously he wore it, you know, day and night. So even the Fatima seers, the Blessed Mother told them to take their, their ropes, their cords off at night, but oh, yeah. he wore his day and night. Oh, and, uh, yeah, so, yeah. So that, um, that penance chain is now on exhibit at Cincinnati. So people can go and venerate that, and there's been a number of healings associated with people using that relic and praying with it. So expand on that. What what kind of healings are you talking about? 
Well, one healing in particular um, was Robert Uselman had lung cancer, and his family went there in 2001 to pray for his intercession to cure him of cancer. And uh, while he was there with his family and the sisters, they used the Father Masichelli's penance chain. And later on, um, Robert Uselman discovered that a cancerous tumor had disappeared from his lung. And um, they opened, Bishop Marlino was our bishop at the time, they opened a diocesan tribunal, and um, they concluded the investigations and sent the results to Rome. And they go through a very, very, very um, serious scrutiny to determine, because it has to be, miracles, according to the Catholic Church, have to be instantaneous, they have to be permanent, and they have to be no explainable medical cause. So it's very difficult to get a miracle certified. So um, we sent the results over. Unfortunately, there there has been no definitive ruling on this um, this cure. The, right. the family obviously believes that they received a, a mir- miraculous cure. Yeah. So one thing people can pray for is this miracle would be accepted. And Father, if it is accepted, so Father right now, Father Messa Kelly is venerable. So there's four steps to sainthood. First step is servant of God, and then next step is venerable, which is where Father Messa Kelly is, and that's where you pray to God for Father Messa Kelly's intercession for a miracle, and if that is approved, then he would be elevated to, he would be beatified and be called blessed, and then you go through the same process one more time, another miracle, and then he would be canonized and become a saint. Wow, so beautiful. Let's do this. I want to take a couple phone calls for you. And again, we're talking about Father Samuel Mazzucchelli, and uh, today God calls him home. Uh, how many years ago was it now that he died? 157 years ago in 1864. Wow. This was an anointed place, wasn't it? I, I think about the United States in the late 1800s, 1859, the Mother of God appeared. I mean, there's so much that's un, un, unfolded. 1892, 33 years the date of that apparition, Leo XIII gave a the statue of St. Joseph, the National Shrine. It's now the National Shrine of uh, St. Joseph uh, to this country. You have Mazza Kelly at that time. A lot of these contemporaries crossed paths, I'm sure. Eileen's listening in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Eileen, thank you for calling in. Good afternoon. Oh, thank you for the fascinating show. My mom um, had a temporary vocation with the Cincinnati Dominicans way back when they had the beautiful white habits. She witnessed uh, uh, a sister have uh, an injury on her hand, and she had a relic of Father Mazzucchelli with her that she put on the hand and under her the big cuffs that they wore, and um, and it was cured. And she just, my mom witnessed that. I can't remember the details, but wow, that's so, awesome. But, <laughs> that's great. I can see why why my mom was always so endeared to him. So. Uh, I, I love him. I don't know. I, I feel drawn to. Him. Hey, thank you, Eileen, for sharing that. What a beautiful story. So, you know, we have a couple minutes. Let me ask you about that. Are there more miracles being reported? I know we have this miraculous lung cancer, uh, you know, healing, but um, are, are there others that are in queue right now? Are you aware of others? And what can people there do, Linda, too? What, what can they do, those who are sick? Can you visit? Should we just pray? What would you suggest? Okay. Well, there are a number of other um, reported miraculous cures. I'm not sure if I'm at liberty to share what yeah, they okay. are. But um, but I'm, I'm not. People are praying for his intercession, and of course, the miracles ultimately come through God, as we know. Amen. And but we're praying for intercession, and God gives the saints for imitation and intercession. And so, he definitely can be praying to 
um, for the intercession of Vanessa Kelly for physical and also spiritual favors. And I just wanted to mention that, you know, a lot of times we think about physical healings, but, you know, one of the, the, the biggest hardships are parents and grandparents have right now is their children have left the faith. And so Father Mesa Kelly, what a great evangelizer. I would really encourage people to pray for his intercession, for his evangelization for the family to return to the faith. It's such a great prayer. I remember praying with you. I held that chain probably for half an hour. That penance you chain. Did. I think you have the record for holding it longer than anybody else, Drew. And then I held the box <laughs> afterwards. It was it. We walked all over the place. I probably had that for a couple of hours. You but did. You did. I, I just felt you know, I felt his presence, and I, I was praying for somebody in particular, and to your point of not physical healing, I was praying for somebody who was struggling emotionally uh, when we were there. Um, you know, they've had anxiety and other issues, and and I really think Father interceded. You know, to this very day, I, I pray to him for certain needs. I mean, there's certain saints I turn to for certain things, and of course, I think we're going to see him in much you know greater prominence in the days ahead. And I look forward to that beatification. Thank you uh, for for introducing me to this powerful um, intercessor, and I will remember you along with my personal intentions. Okay, and you got to come into the studio and where we can pray together, and I'll come back down and we'll pray by the grave again, and we'll connect. It'll be fun. Okay. I'm looking forward to that, Drew. All right. God bless you, Linda. Have a great one, okay? God bless you, too, Drew. Yeah, he's a powerhouse saint. Today, we remember the anniversary of the death of Venerable Samuel Mazzucchelli. Let's call upon his intercession, along with all the intercession of those angels and saints, as we pray the chaplet of divine mercy. Miracles happen. Let's pray for one for you. I'll be right back. 